Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture and organised by Architects for the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the Fin de Siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm just going to stand up momentarily, um, and then I promise I'll sit down and let everybody else speak. So my name's Vanessa Norwood. I'm a curator and a cultural strategist, and I've been working on cultural projects that amplify stories about materials and sustainability. So I recently worked with Joe Giddings, actually, at the Building Centre, and we did a show with Material Cultures called Homegrown. I've put together an exhibition called New Stone Age, which I think has sort of sparked an interest in structural stone, and that was with group work, the Stonemasonry Company, and Webb Yates. So I'm really interested in how we can build more sustainably, as I'm sure we all are in the room, and certainly Will and Grant are doing a great job of, of sharing those stories. So in what's been... Uh, I was gonna, we were talking earlier and we were saying it's been a bad week for the climate. Actually, it's probably been a bad millennia. Um, it seems like climate pledges are at the whim of votes and politics and can be retracted uh, as elections loom. Um, and that's a very depressing reality that we're all facing. So I thought this evening, this evening, I won Negroni and I don't know what time it is. I thought this afternoon we would start with despair, but I promise we'll end with hope. So um, introducing you to our brilliant speakers, we've got Elaine Tugood. Everyone's dotted around, so I will wave. We've got Elaine Tugood from the Concrete Centre. We've got Bola Agunmuthun from Tisserin Architects. We've got Joe Giddings, engineers. In fact, we've got two engineers. Thank you from my engineer on the right here. We've got no architects. So you two are going to have to... Elaine. Elaine is an architect from the Concrete Centre. It's, go it's going well. It's going well. I'm glad I had the Negroni. Otherwise, I might be more worried. Um, Joe Giddings is from Built by Nature and also an architect. Great. We, we, can, we know who to direct our questions to. And Paul Duggan from Elliot Wood. So, yeah, I wanted to start by bringing our speakers in and then, yeah, feel free to join in by waving your hand. We've got a roving mic. So it seems there's lots we need to do. There's a lot of conversation about sustainable materials. Uh, but there are really big issues, I think. I mean, close to here, there is the, the City of London cluster of skyscrapers. So while we're all being very interested in straw bales and building sustainably and looking at materials that at the moment are very experimental and hold great promise, but in the meantime, we, things are not changing. So I wanted to ask our esteemed speakers, who are architects and engineers, what they wake up at night worrying about. So starting, we'll go in a clockwise, starting with Elaine. What, what wakes you up in the middle of the night and makes you scream? My to-do list. I'm sure, I don't think I'm unusual in that. But um, I would say that on my to-do list, it's much longer and more detailed than it's ever been. And uh, because there is so much appetite for people wanting to know how can they can specify and design their concrete better. 
And uh, what keeps me up awake is not being able to answer everybody's questions and uh, do it fast enough. Okay, great. Well, we'll try and answer some questions this afternoon. So over to Bola. Hi. 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 Can you hear me? In the midst of the crowd, yeah. What, so what keeps you awake at night? Well, to be honest, I've got two young kids, so I sleep quite well. So, um, um, I mean, I think one thing for me is, is um, how we are heading as a society um, in terms of knowledge share and knowledge transfer. That's a key thing for me. Um, and, I mean, what, what I mean by that is, I mean, historically we had a master-apprentice um, approach to knowledge share. And, and one thing that kind of concerns me is how we are understanding materials, how we're in, interpreting um, structures or architecture. So um, that's something that really, um, I suppose, is on my mind for, for quite some time. Yeah, brilliant. And Joe? Um, you probably want me to say the concrete centre right now, don't you? <laughs> well, we'll move to arm wrestling later. <laughs> um, what keeps me up at night? I, so we were, we were asked not to prepare anything today, but I did bring one note with me, and this is probably what bring, wakes me up at night. Uh, it just says 424 on it, which is the parts per million of uh, carbon dioxide in our atmosphere uh, in May this year, which was the highest it's, it's ever been. When, when I was born, which is 1989, in case you're wondering, it was, uh, it was around 350 or just above 350, so it's gone up a lot in uh, 33 years, and it's, it's going up, and it continues to go up, and the further it goes up, the worse climate change will get, so um, yeah, that number keeps me awake at night. Yeah, we're all going to be having that nightmare tonight, so yeah, thanks Joe, and over to Oh, and for myself, I'm just incredibly selfish when it comes down to this, really. Uh, I went to, I graduated as an engineering school, and, you know, you learn some of the old-fashioned techniques for understanding the concrete grade of something. Uh, any of you might know from structural engineers, we've, one of the oldest techniques for gauging the strength of concrete is you chip a little bit off and just eat it, and just, just, just work out what ENT is. And if the, lo the longer you actually get on with it, each different, like, quarry in each different area gets its own tawar, and it would be a strange shame if all of that knowledge, knowledge of that institution was lost because ultimately I, I'm paid to do that so that's kind of scary to me <laughs> so we talked we talked a bit earlier before although we, I promise we didn't prepare anything we talked about where the kind of blockages are like what is because obviously a lot of architects and engineers really care about this issue like where where is it going wrong because clearly not things aren't changing quickly enough in fact they're getting worse as as Joe has just mentioned. So where, where are the blocks? I'll go to, to Bola, actually. Where are the blocks happening? Is it procurement? Is it planning? Like, where are we screwing up with this, this whole chain of events from designing to building? What, what's going wrong? Again, um, I go back to knowledge and go back to understanding um, the full life cycle of a building design process and also the materials, because... Um, we do spend a lot of our time, we, 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 we made decisions based on what we've been given, whereas, you know, we've got to appreciate that a lot of the time when we are given information, it's, it's, it could be a sales, you know. Um, so we, we've really got to always ask the question why, and I think, I'm not going to say lazy, I'm going to say convenient, you know. It's, it's too convenient for us to do, to not ask the question why, 
for us just to allow us to deliver what we need to deliver. So there's, there's, there's a bit of conflict of, if you like, um, pressures there to making sure that we need to deliver what we need to deliver, but also making sure we're doing the right thing for both um, the client, society, and everyone else. Yeah, I mean, so the lack of kind of questioning about products has obviously had tra tragic and terrible consequences in London. Um, and I wonder if, you know, why, why is that happening? I mean, Elaine, have you got, why are we not being told the truth about certain materials? I don't know if it's about the truth. I think, I think it's always dangerous to put these down to sort of black and white, wrong and right decisions. You know, we know building is complex, life's complex, sustainability is complex. There's no, you know, we know what the challenge, you know, we know what the challenges are, we know what to try and fix. The challenge is knowing how to fix it, and there is no one right answer. And I think the challenge with that then is as architects and engineers, you know, when we all studied, we didn't learn about this stuff or very little, very scant. So actually, we're needing to learn a lot and very fast. And I think the appetite for learning is absolutely there. But we don't have the time within that process of design, often, to be able to do it. And so therefore, what happens is that we rely on you know, headlines, you know, delving deep. We know this has all been unpicked through the whole uh, um, uh, Grenfell issues, you know, with the understanding of the golden thread and how important it is that we have to take some responsibility, more responsibility again, about understanding where our materials come from. You know, the questions that we ask, we, we have to ask now as architects, that I would ask today, that I did, you know, last century, I was an architect last century, was, you know, we didn't generally ask about carbon, we didn't ask about responsible sourcing, we didn't think about the end of life of our products, we still generally don't really ask that question about how long our building's going to last and what's going to happen to it in the future now everyone is getting much much better than it you said that there's no change i've seen that even just in the last three five years a you know really steep change in people's attitudes to what they want to know really steep change with regards to what manufacturers are doing and want to do and are doing the appetite the pull the market is there so i think one of the difficulties with this is that actually there's still a lot of learning to be done in understanding what the better, I'm not going to say right or wrong, but what the better or worse solutions are, in terms of making informed decisions, because you know, the, there's still a lot to know about embodied carbon and the measurement of it. It's not a simple thing, and we, I think we all think the job's done and that that's the right way to do so it. So maybe the measures, and I'll, I'll look towards Joe. so things like Briam just don't seem to be doing a good enough job, I think. They don't measure... Um, embodied carbon, they measure operational carbon. So you get a glass and concrete and steel skyscraper that is excellent. And you think, how? How is that excellent? I mean, you're, so you're working with Built by Nature and obviously you're, you're looking into timber particularly. Is it the way that we're measuring stuff is just wrong? We need a radical rethink of how we, how we assess what we're building? Yeah, um, it, it's partly measuring. I want to come back to a question you asked before as well, actually. You were talking about the barriers, the blockers. Yeah. So we, at Built, Built by Nature, we're working to increase the use of timber and other bio-based materials in, in construction. So things like straw, hemp, uh, mycelium. There are, there are many kind of bio-based materials that we can use in our, in our buildings, but uh, but are very difficult to use at, at the moment. Um, timber is, is the one amongst these which is easiest to use. It's the most kind of 
market ready, you could say, or, or it's the it's ahead in the kind of innovation curve. So it's it's uh, it's it's relatively mainstream now timber. But despite it being mainstream, there are actually many uh, barriers and uh, challenges to, to using it that are preventing uh, a lot of the industry from actually picking it up and, and using it in in large and complex buildings. It's it's relatively straightforward to use on a small scale, but once you go um, big. Uh, it becomes very, very hard. And, and I think it all comes back to policy. And, uh, you know, people talk about insurance being a major blocker for timber buildings a lot, um, which is true, uh, and, and fire safety and concerns about fire safety, which is also true. But ultimately, I think it all comes back to policy. And, and in this country, we don't have particularly good regulation when it comes to um, the materials that we use in, in our buildings. So... Uh, we, for years, have, have had to measure operational energy efficiency, uh, so the amount of carbon or energy that the building uses uh, as it's run, but, but we don't regulate embodied carbon at all. It's not part of the building regulations. You don't even need to, to report it or measure it in most cases. In, in some, you do. So in London, for very, very large buildings, you have to because GLA has gone further than, than the government. But... Uh, in other cases, you really just don't have to measure it um, in a policy sense. So uh, most developers have have kind of picked picked up on it anyway and are, are doing it out of their, their own right. So uh, so I think that in order to really change the way that we, we build buildings and to make them more sustainable and to be able to use uh, bio-based materials, uh, we really need policy to be the kind of driver and we need a supportive policy environment. Um, so yeah, to, and then your other question about measuring. I think it's very complicated to, to measure embodied carbon, whether we're talking about the lifespan of timber or the lifespan of concrete. There are many questions about both. Uh, what happens at the end of life? Uh, how, much, you know, how much does uh, carbon gets disturbed in the kind of forest floor as you harvest? timber, we don't really know, uh, and it's very difficult to measure that when you're building a building and specifying timber. Um, we have quite blunt instruments, I think. Um, so we're kind of at the beginning of a, of a revolution, I would say, in, in looking at our buildings in a different way, um, moving from looking at them in a, in a very financially driven way to looking at them in a carbon way, looking at through the lens of carbon. But um, it's a new field, I, I would say. So, as well as policy, I wanted to pick on another word you said, and I might actually turn to my right and ask Paul for his view on it. You, you spoke about big and buildings being big. I mean, is there a mind shift? I'm going to ask Paul. Is, we need to have a shift in mindset, surely, as well. I mean, the kind of Manhattan real estate model of building skyscrapers, there's surely got to end. What do you think? Well, possibly, yeah, the idea that big buildings will usually require different materials. I question the idea as to whether we should actually be using timber in skyscrapers, just generally. You brought up the fire concerns already, but we've, when it comes to timber, for the timber we need to use today, we had to plant it 25 years ago. So all of the timber we use, we've already planted. So we have a finite amount of timber. Yes, it can be regrown, but if we're building stuff, we need to know the stock we have available. So should we be using the timber in the most appropriate manner we can? In which case, you spoke about low-rise and small-rise buildings. We currently don't actually do most small-rise buildings out of timber entirely. We go to the United States, we, they all, nearly all of their buildings are entirely timber at that sort of scale. 
And you could even argue that if we focused on that area, it could have significantly more impact than trying to shift timber into a position which it can be used for, but is that the best use for it? And that's sometimes where the discussion happens with is that especially where if we're trying to use these materials in a good manner and the most efficient manner, that's the key where there is the efficient manner, we need to be careful with how we use it. And that's the bit where ultimately there doesn't have to be a change in whether it's large buildings or not, but the things that we all have to work within. Talk about high-rise buildings. Maybe the BCO has some more things to question there. Oh, fantastic in there. 2023 publication, they're saying, ah, yes, you can have a column grid down to six meters instead of nine. Have I met any developer that's actually listening to that? No. So until we pick up that aspect and use the material efficiently, the scale of it doesn't really matter because we aren't even doing the small scale right. So how, how are we going to shift the minds of developers then? If that's a, So I'm going to shout over to Bola again. Developers, what are we going to do with them? Incentivize them. H how? Money. No, um, I don't... <laughs> we um, pay them. Oh, that no. seems a spectacularly bad idea. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good point. I mean, and it's a good, it's a, um, good question because ultimately um, there are some developers that we've, that's come to us, that we've worked with, um, who has actually asked, oh, um, I've got a seven-story building, um, I want to do timber, what do you think? And we've said, well, actually, it's probably not the best use of the material because of the floor plate, because, you know, um, timber works well when it's regularised, where, you know, everything goes down straight. If it's offset, when everything staggers, it's a bit tricky, it's a bit less efficient. The way we get developers on board is to, again, I, I, I keep on saying it, just going back to showing them the benefits of it, you know, as in knowledge, giving them the knowledge of what the benefits can come from using um, timber or for whichever materials it would be. It doesn't have to be timber. It could be steel or concrete or whatever. Um, but for us as engineers, and I think this is probably more for us as engineers, is we've got, a, if you like, a responsibility to be able to be in that room to have that discussion with them, you know, and to explain and to, if you like, be a Victorian engineer where you was a um, salesman, business, businessman, engineer, you know, you had to come up with an idea, you had to sell the idea, you had to market the idea, and I think that's one thing I suppose we could do better to help um, get developers on the right track. Sounds sensible. Yeah, Elaine, you were talking earlier about how concrete is often overused. I mean, what's your... What's well, your yeah, what I was saying is that there's, a, you know, obviously there's a lot of concrete used and um, a lot less concrete could be used in the same building and still get all the benefits of that concrete. And I think, and it comes back to the point I made before, is that, you know, when we weren't necessarily taught about designing the most efficient buildings and looking after the materials that we use. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's one of the things about concrete is it's readily available everywhere in the world. It does a lot of jobs. It do, it's really good at what it does. And it's quite inexpensive. And so, actually, maybe we need to treasure it a little bit more and recognise that uh, we put it... We, all materials need to be used where they're most appropriate. Uh, this is absolutely the, the, the most... It's what we need to do as architects. We should always do that. But what we need also need to recognise is that um, carbon isn't the only measure of sustainability. And you mentioned BRIAM, and I'm not going to stand here and defend BRIAM at all. I mean, I've... Yeah, I mean, having gone through those processes. But what it does do well is it's a measure of all the other sustainability issues as well. 
and it was, um, but, but carbon with the net zero commitments of the UK has leapfrogged up to the top of the tree. And what we've got to make sure is that we're not blinded by just looking at that as an issue. Now, absolutely, hugely important. And, and, and there's meant lots to say that it is the most important. And of course, everything's got to come down and we've all got to, we all need to engage in it. And I think the embodied carbon measurement point that you made, Joe, is hugely important. You know, there aren't enough of us measuring our buildings from an embodied point of view. Now, I think it's wrong to say that developers are the block because there are many that are really engaged in this, but everybody's on a different journey. And I think sometimes we might have a sort of slightly... I was up in Birmingham the other week having a conversation with some architects up there, and they were saying, well, actually, you know, you're maybe doing it down there, but we're not doing it here. So there's, it de depends where you are in the country. It depends how engaged you are with the process. And there, there is... The money is what's driving, I think, at the moment, better practice. It also can be some of the blocker. So it's really interesting. So green investment, ESG from companies, is making a really big... People needing to report on what they're doing is starting... I take the point policy and regulation is the, you know, the real mainstay, but things are changing. They are. I'm more optimistic. Maybe that's why it was the to-do list that was keeping me away. We, we are allowed to move to hope. <laughs> I, I love the... I mean, money, obviously, is a massive motivator in all things. So I think, yes, the green economy and making the money matter is, is going to be key. I'm quite keen to find out in our, in our lovely audience here, yeah, um, what you have to say about things. I'm also quite keen to hear any sort of architecture students in the room to know if, if this is stuff that you are being taught, if the conversation is changing. But over to this gentleman in the corner. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm a, well, designer. Are you a developer? I'm not. I wish <laughs> I was sometimes. Designer, business consultant, all sorts of things. I want to challenge the brief, um, like the, uh, the guy at the front said. You know, first of all, global warming is happening, but if you know the facts and figures, the UK contributes 1% to carbon emissions globally. China, Africa, India, obviously, and America, big culprits. So I think we have to put a bit of perspective on this debate. Absolutely, people are here for the debate, um, the second thing is, it's a bit of a tangent, but forgive me. Um, everyone in design is obviously very ethically conscious. I get that, and it's a, a great concern. But I wonder how far we can push the idea of ethics in the fact that, for example, a friend of mine has got a job in Neom. If you know what Neom is, it's a, it's a kind of a citadel that's being created. You might, you might have an audience that's aware of, of Neom. <laughs> well, good, good. So I don't have to explain it. But it, it, it's amazing. It's got lots of political issues with it, Saudi Arabia and all the rest of it. But the point I want to make very quickly, and I will be brief, is that people like Foster and lots of other leading Western architects are now finding themselves going to Neom one of the reasons is because it is unlimited in its creativity. There is unlimited budget. Do what you want. Um, because my worry is, is the ethical constraints we're putting on architecture, design, and so on here in England, for example, is so restrictive, all our best brains are going elsewhere. What do we say to that? Yeah, um, I mean, following the money to Neom is, is, is a thing. And it's, it's not definitely... just the money, though. It's creativity. Uh, I will hand over to Joe, who was looking like he was going to give a pertinent answer to this. Uh, I, I want to challenge a couple of things that you said. First, firstly, the, what, the, the idea that because we're only 1% of uh, global emissions that, that it doesn't, doesn't matter. 
regardless of how many, how much of, of climate change is down to us right now, how, how much of our share is, is uh, of CO2 comes, comes from our territorial emissions, the UK is home to a huge financial sector which drives, uh, you know, a business industry all over the world and has a much larger footprint than, than simply just the, the carbon emissions that are produced here. Yeah, and then I was going to come on to your, your second point. You, you then went on to talk about Foster, right? London is home to architects that work on projects all over the world. They work on projects in Saudi Arabia, in China. Uh, we, we have a much bigger impact than just what we're building here, right? And a lot of construction that's done elsewhere is designed by firms that are based here in London. So if we can shift the, the argument, uh, shift the, the industry here, shift the way of thinking about buildings, it will have a much bigger impact than, than just the way we build buildings here. I, I just, I, we, I can't let the neon thing sit either. I mean... <laughs> But it's, it's really good to bring Neom up, isn't it? it I mean, is it, really it's good happening, and it's in the Venice Architecture Biennale, this sort of bourgeois gathering of, of architecture. I mean, they, they made a big splash by spending a lot of money creating a thing. And it's true that people like Peter Cook are building. It's huge, in my mind and your mind, I'm sure, it's hugely problematic. Shame but on it, them. I mean, like three exists. people yeah. are being beheaded because yeah. of that project, right? They, they're being sentenced to death yeah. because they, 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 they decided to the, protest yeah. against it. It's just like absolutely despicable that any architect is still working on that. I just yeah. think that if anyone in the room is, then like, you need to really question yourself. Yeah. I'm sure no one here is. But. No, but it, it's, I think it's really good to bring it up because this is the, this is the place where it, it's really contested what we're doing. So my, I mean, I mean, I will ask some more sensible questions as well about scaling up, because it seems like a lot of the discussions we have are quite intellectual, and we want to do the right thing, we want to build in straw, and then you have neon, you know. And I, I also asked one of a younger group of architects that are working on it. I said, "Human rights," and he said, "Oh, they've only beheaded a few feminists." I was like, and I'm, I'm quoting. I won't name the architect, but you know, it's really problematic. It's really problematic, but it's, it's happening. I mean, yeah, so to open up discussion, has anyone else got anything to say about NEOM? Do you? Yeah, I'm going to pass the mic to you. I don't have anything to say about NEOM, but I would, I would like to say something about the sort of general framing of this discussion, which is that we are in a climate emergency where unless we take action within the next five years, the sort of ever-increasing rate of carbon emission, emissions are just going to cause, as we know, catastrophic results around the world. So the big question is, how can we reduce um, emissions from the construction industry? We are all very much enmeshed in an economic system that's based on growth. So this is why construction continue, emissions from construction continues to grow. And it will continue to grow despite our best efforts that have been described today through, through learning and measuring. We are still on an economic uh, path that is leading to our inevitable destruction. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but actually we need to stop building new buildings altogether very, very rapidly. That is the, this needs to be a global change. It needs to be part of a just transition globally. We cannot fix this problem by fiddling around with minor adjustments to the business as usual model, which I'm afraid is what we're talking about. So that's all I wanted to say. 
I mean, I think you're right. There's, there's definitely a feeling of fiddling while home burns. Um, I'm going to pass over to hi, hi, Armin. Hi. In the I mean, there's so many fascinating points, all, all sort of flying against one another, and I think we have to untangle them. I mean, 1%, you're quite right, the UK is pretty much 1%. Uh, there's about a third of the world produces 1%. So if the third of the world said, uh, what, what's the point of the 1%, it's a pretty big impact. The other third is China, and the other third is India, the US, etc. All of us have got to pitch in. Yeah? Uh, uh, the reality is, I mean, I would say it's quite indulgent for us in the, in the sort of developed world to say, oh, we've got to stop building. Because two-thirds of the world don't have a roof over their head, not a proper roof. The toilets are the back window. Uh, they don't have running water. They're still in disease, and they're going to build. Whether you like it or not, they will build. Uh, and we need to show them how to. And at the moment, they're looking to us and saying, you're all modernized. It's all concrete and steel. Aluminium frame windows. We want what you've got full-on air conditioning, and so on and so forth. And now we've realized it's not the way to do it. We've got to show them how to do it. And it isn't that difficult. We, we talk I think, yes, yeah, so I mean, sorry, I, I hate to interrupt, but I think this, we built up a colonial history of bad practice, haven't yeah. we? Where we did say, we're going to teach you how to build. How about concrete? You know, no, doesn't matter that you're living in a tropical climate. This is how we do it. Yeah. So I, I'm also very aware that, and I obviously not disagreeing with what you're saying but it's like this sort of telling telling people what to do is also really problematic yes okay it? maybe i'll use my language differently i mean we're being asked uh we're not not to work on various projects around the world but simply being asked about the knowledge to spread that knowledge uh at even saudi people have asked why are you not working in saudi well actually no one's ever asked and uh, <laughs> uh but i know people who have gone there and i'm phoning yeah. them having Zoom calls with them saying, I know you are working on these giant behemoth things. And people forget, yeah. it's very easy to concentrate on neon or the line and so forth. 55% of Saudi Arabia is under 25. 25% uh, is under 14. They're going to have a, a, you know, they're having a population explosion. And currently, they're going hell for leather for concrete and steel. Where's the steel coming from? India, Brazil, and so on, yeah? Even in, in Rwanda, single story, we were looking to, on, on re-skilling re, um, stone masonry in Rwanda because they've got a, they had a tradition. There's a health center which is on hold, and I asked them, why is it on hold? It's a single story structure. You've reskilled all these stonemasons to build as you have. And what are they doing? They're cladding a steel frame, but they're waiting for the steel frame to arrive from Brazil. It's completely bonkers, yeah? Because they're looking to us. And if we can turn around and say, look, we're managing to change that, why are we not changing it? Well, as our predecessors um, said, we're not educating it. I mean, how many architects are here? If, you, if we put all the, the hands in the air, I don't know, probably not then. Yeah, so how many, have we got any architecture students here? I'm quite, I mean, we've got lots of, yeah, so uh, where are you studying? At Cambridge. So how, how much of these discussions are being had at Cambridge, would you say? challenges 
I'm, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I'm a bit stressed. Um, I think the design challenges are really changing at the moment, and it's not only about form and like designing, um, designing these massive buildings that are budgeted and operated through various marketing campaigns, but I think we really have to challenge uh, like the full circular systems and the questions that we have to ask in the process are changing rapidly and we're no longer in a position to say like whether this you know whether this is a colonial um, whether this is an innovative design whether this is the best material we have to be really rigorous about not just the material we're choosing but also how we're sourcing it how we're how we're so that discussion is happening at Cape absolutely, Park. Absolutely, absolutely. Provenance and the kind of ecological impact of materials. Absolutely, it's is, happening. Yeah. But I think the major um, frustration that current architecture students are going through at the moment is um, the lack of disparity in the education and the practices in the offices. There are right. offices that are um, defending the actions that we're talking about that should be taking about climate change and um, various methods of sustainable building. But at the same time, there's a huge disparity between the sector and our... Uh, so you're learning this stuff, getting into an office and it's not been useful. I mean, I worked <laughs> in an office um, before and I was very eager to design these emergency relief structures and I ended up designing an aluminium-cladded shopping mall in China for a year. Wow, that's quite an extreme example. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's, it's maybe, I, I'm, I'm Gen Z as well, so maybe we're living at a point where we really have to stop being frustrated with the system, the education, this disparity, the wages, the salaries of the architects, and really put that aside and say like, okay, we have these design challenges, let's focus on how we're reframing these new design challenges, because the challenges and the questions we have right now are significantly different from what we had in, before 10 years ago, maybe. I'm afraid you have to carry on being um, proactive and stressed about work and, and pay, because otherwise nothing will change. So are there any architects in the room that want to say anything? Have you got, yeah. I'm yes. an architect, but also <laughs> staying on the education side, I also teach uh, postgrads, and the, the, the design workshop that I'm involved with is about adaptive reuse, and we're making the challenges against climate change, obviously, but not just climate change, Our rapid urbanization and the housing crisis is two of the other big problems. There is more and more awareness about reuse and reinvention, alteration, um, there's very little talked about it generally, um, but there's universities in, in Europe, Northern Europe, and in the UK, Manchester, I think, run a course in adaptive reuse and, and uh, retention of, of and reworking of existing buildings. And that goes back to what Elaine was kind of hinting at right at the beginning. There's a kind of maybe a, a kind of catch up with the way that we we um, learn how to adapt and bend the rules or even make new rules that kind of can create something a little bit more useful. Um, my question as an architect going to this panel would be along those adaptive reuse kind of things. Um, and the question would be, surely 
concrete, steel, and glass for the fact that we've been using them for about 150 years and we no longer use obsolescence like they did in the 19th century as a capitalist mode of rebuild, 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 surely the technology now allows those three materials to be a lot more resilient than mushrooms. Yeah, so we'll go to Elaine and then we'll do, we'll do a little loop. I... <laughs> Certainly more resilient than mushrooms. But um, no, I think it's absolutely right. And it's back to the, the point that the lady made there. I think the first thing that we should all be doing as architects, and if this isn't something with, that you do, that we do, you know, that we're all doing, it's actually saying well, you've got a new project. The first thing we should be looking at is how little can I build to fulfill that brief and challenge that brief? That is the number one thing. And it's, you know, it's before that reduce is the avoid, right? That, 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 that is the simplest, easiest way to reduce the amount. doesn't matter what you replace it in. You're going to be using carbon. You're going to be having impact on the environment, no matter what your material is. So that's the number one thing that we could do. So, and we, and right, so we've built a lot already. We've got a lot of buildings that we could reuse. From a concrete point of view, a lot of that concrete doesn't you have to do anything different for it to make you to last 100 years. You know, so we should be just, so how long has it got? Why, why are we thinking about demolishing that? Why we, can we do it another way? Reuse it as a whole. I call it the milk bottle strategy. You know, the whole thing about recycling glass. You should keep it as a glass to reuse it. I was brought up in Germany. I'm totally used to taking my yogurt pots made out of glass to the supermarket before I another one, and it gets refilled. Your beer bottles nowadays rather than the yogurt, I have to admit. But it's the same thing. Reuse that structure in situ. It's the most sustainable, lowest so th thing to that do. That actually brings me to a question, probably maybe about some of the stuff on display here, although I haven't had a good look around yet. Are we, well, do we have this weird, slightly schizophrenic attitude to materials where we might be using the waste to do some sustainable milk bottles? That we're kind of prettifying waste without actually thinking about how we, we use it. Like, you know, we should not be... Do 3D printing with stone dust. We should, you know, it, why are we doing this? I wouldn't say no to anything. I think we are in that amazing, fantastic and really important phase of uh, innovation. And in my experience, in a, the door to open up to innovation is wider than ever it's been for the entire, you know, I've been an architect for nearly 30 years and it's much, much wider than it's ever been. The appetite, the investment, the challenge is the upscaling and how to get that into, to, into a product. And I think the answer to that question actually depends on its use. A lot of the things that we've talked about, we can see around here today, are not being designed for the structure of a building. What we're talking about today in this discussion, a lot of it is about the, the bones, you know, what, the building enclosure or the structure. Very, very different criteria, very different anticipated lifespan, very different performance requirements. And so there's a place for it all, but what it is is the questioning that we heard yeah. right at the beginning to understand what its use is, what does it need to do, what lifespan do we want out of it. And so I, th I think, you know, for something that's in a, in a fit out, that's very likely to, you know, challenge, does it need to be refitted? How much do we need to re redo all of this stuff in our hotels and, you know, in restaurants? How, you know, often we have that stuff either should be something that ha is designed for a short lifespan and is recyclable or it's completely deconstructable and can be reused because it's only going to be used in that place for short. So it's a different, do you see what I mean? It's a different, yeah, yeah. different set of questions that we yes. need to be asking. Yes, although, yes, I agree. And in, but in this is, is the problem as well, I think, that sort of, the, the problem of scale. So I'd like to ask Paul, have you been asked to engineer a mycelium skyscraper? 
Not yet, no, but I do want to touch back on the student in the corner. Do not stop being angry at lack of being paid. That's disgusting. Do be, stay angry. Seriously, stay angry. Um, but the, the complexity here is actually that, especially with concrete and steel, what the current opinions are generally is we want all of this green stuff, but none of the, to put it bluntly, complications that come with it. We have been addicted to this super material. It is strong, it can deal with fire compartmentation, deal with acoustics, can do long spans, put your columns anywhere you want, and we want all of this, but something that's not that. And at the moment, if you want to get that change, there needs to be the shift. The shift from, let's just take this building for example, downstands. Oh, you know, modern buildings, we don't want downstands. Downstands are ugly, and to be fair, it makes mechanical engineers' lives an absolute nightmare. However, it's you know, significantly more sustainable to build a construction like this. We need the changing shift of how we build the building and the thing we've become really addicted to, to, you know, have the addressment and say, you know, maybe, maybe you need to calm down on the full-fat Coca-Cola and just, you know, try with orange juice. I think, yeah, I mean, we need to get some developers in the room, don't we, and just say, no, no, you can't do that. Joe, any thoughts on this, this kind of schizophrenia that we live with then? Are you inbuilt by nature? You have this kind of platform, you have a voice to change stuff. How are you really going to make a difference? Um, We're moving towards hope. Well, yeah, okay, hope, right. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, the reason that I work for Built by Nature, in fact, the reason that Built by Nature exists is, is because of this, this big idea that we can turn our built environment into a place where not only do we reduce carbon emissions, but we also store carbon that's been sequestered by the, the natural world, right? So, so that's the thing that I find really hopeful about bio-based materials, because if we look ahead to um, 2050, when we're hopefully going to be at net zero, uh, what net zero really means is that we're just not emitting more than we are also kind of sequestering, right? So it's net, but... At that point in 2050, we will have already that, that number that I showed earlier of atmospheric CO2 parts per million will be much higher than it is today. So we need to think beyond net zero, uh, and that's why Built by Nature does what it does. We need to be thinking about drawing huge amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Plants do that very well, and buildings can be used to store that. So, so that's the, the story of hope, I think, that's in bio-based materials. Great. Thank you. I mean, it's good to... Talk, talking of hope, I mean, Boller is working on a really lovely project at Wolves Lane. I mean, is, is the change going to come about with communities, with being local? I'm quite keen to hear about the sort of that project or projects where you think making these kind of really exemplary projects might actually change the conversation and shift it to a more positive key? I think um, one of the good things about the project in Wolves Lane, which is basically a, um, there's, there's three buildings, timber and straw bell building. Um, the brief was no concrete, no steel, um, which we pretty much achieved until the contractor got involved. Um, until who was involved? The contractor got involved. Um, <laughs> So um, I, I dress a little bit, but I think part of it is, is actually us understanding that full life cycle of a building, okay? And what I mean by that is actually understanding what you draw, what your design, what your best intentions are 
you need to follow that through, but also be strong enough to challenge the builder, the contractor, challenge the um, developer, challenge the architects, um, challenge everyone, but actually understand what the main, um, if you like, objective is, if you like. Um, so Wolf's Lane is great in that, in, in that way, in a sense that we also um, included the community, so they understood the building, they understood the bones of the building, um, they understood um, how the straw bells worked, how the timber works, and actually what that means is um, the next project is going to be even better, you know, because ultimately, although we are in a climate um, emergency, no one, I think, disputes that, the answer's never going to be solved, this problem's never going to be solved tomorrow. It's going to be solved um, through, if you like, iterative process of doing one thing, then doing the next thing better, and then doing the next thing better than that. And that's why it's up to us, um, going to the gentleman's point about being the 1%, to actually, you know, contribute, because other people in the world could learn from our mistakes. And that's why it's also important that we got the community involved, because then they can see, you know, what the intention is and how we can solve this problem. So... I mean, I think this is the eighth time I've said this, but about knowledge share. Um, but ultimately, I think for us, it's just about being transparent and seeing how we can all bang our heads together and make sure we just follow it through. The point I wanted to say about the contractors is um, we had a challenge where costs came involved. Um, so um, the contractor, obviously, with the best intentions as well, we need to get to a stage where, again, with the architectural students as well, um, where we understand procurement, where we understand supply of materials, where we understand if we are going to specify hardwood timber, it may take eight weeks um, to get to site rather than normally three weeks. You know, it's all of that learning where, which, which falls out traditional, what we've been taught previously. And it is a mind shift. It's not just a replacement. This is one thing I want to literally just stress. It's not just a replacement of concrete for timber. It is actually a, a, a shift in mindset. Um, in shifting mindset of how we design materials, how we procure it, how we look after it, how we maintain it, and how we, um, if you like, um, work with the contractor, the architects, and the developers with that material. That's brilliant. I mean, there are some really positive things happening I think in our in our world there are people you know like all of you doing really good work and trying to shift the discussion there's a lot more stuff happening about material reuse I think which is an interesting discussion as well that we're not just sending to landfill um so Elaine I mean ending on sort of positivity because we are Concrete's had a bad, you know, some bad press, which has been to do with actually maintenance, as we mentioned, and not to do with that, that sort of... That's not really concrete. Though. No. Okay. So I won't lay that one at your feet in a sort of concrete analogy. But yeah. So what, I mean, how, how are you thinking sort of positively yeah. going forwards? I mean... Yeah. No, no, I'm really positive. I mean, co co concrete typically is really good from a maintenance point of view. And actually, it's one of the reasons why it's so often used. And, that, and I think it's one of the reasons where this mind shift is needed is because actually in the UK, we traditionally we're used to using minerals, materials and bricks and blocks and things that aren't 
don't, aren't worried by water. And so our detailing as architects are all, and fire and everything is all predicated on these sort of not really thought about assumptions. And that all has to change and maintenance if we're going to be shifting our material uses. And, uh, and, that, and that's where it is, a whole-scale whole shift that requires clients to be on board right at the beginning. Yeah. And, and there's only so much that we can do as architects and designers. And I think collaboration is the huge thing. I have seen... Um, so I've been at the Concrete Centre now 15 years. And, I've, and when I first started, uh, so my job is to answer questions, is to give advice to people about architects, answer. So the first 10 years, everybody wanted to say, how do I make my concrete look good? Because they wanted to use the thermal mass to use to keep the energy use down. Yeah. I would say in the last five years, everybody wants to know, how can I make my concrete greener, so to speak? And you make it green, but I mean, so which, what are the, what's, the, what's the solutions? And there is lots that you can do. One of the things I was saying is that concrete is often judged by the concrete that has been in the ground or is being used before anybody's asked for it to be a low-carbon solution. And there are loads of low-carbon solutions within the standards. There's a long way to go and there's more that can be done and there's lots of work on making that easier. But there is... Um, but what I'm seeing is so much more collaboration and that's what... Uh, gives me hope and positivity with regards to this. There's a new benchmarking scheme out at the moment to make it easier to specify concrete. So you can say A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Next month, two months, there's a new standard coming out for concrete. The whole industry is geared up to have more powdered limestone. So overnight, even if you don't ask for it, I'm going to say concrete goes from whole milk to, to goes from full fat to semi-skimmed. Right, so that you don't even need to engage in it. You're going to be. But we haven't got oat milk yet. Or... Right, no, well, oat milk's <laughs> there, but oat milk doesn't isn't quite. You know, it has done to the same thing. But it's there. But the standards need to evolve. But those standards are all being written to try to facilitate more oat milk, for example, to make that analogy. So I'm really, I'm hopeful there is, and back to the other thing, that what the yeah. learning and the research that's going on in the UK that can be spread across the world and vice versa, international collaboration is really heartening. So, yeah, I think, you know, we've all, we've all have a role to play, but that's a small scale, big scale, industry, individual specification, talking to your grandma, it's yeah. everybody. Lots, lots to do. So we've got about five minutes, so let's just... I'm really keen to hear from a few people in the room, so we'll start, start here. Thank you, Vanessa. Um, so I'm Tabitha. I work for Timber Development UK. I've worked with Timber for the last 40 years, ever since I started coppicing at the age of 15 and using our homegrown um, hardwoods. All buildings are multi-material. I mean, the majority. You might get one or two who, like the cork house, say they're 100%, but they're not 100% cork. Um, the knowledge, so going back to address um, education, educational is based on a five-year rolling program. After three years, you get to change your program and apply to REBA or ARB or um, the Joint Board of Moderators and change that. Um, Timber is just now coming into... Um, Engineering, which it hasn't been, um, you know, you're looking at other materials. So again, our students really, um, it, it, you know, again, it's not their fault, but it's not the, lect the lecturers also don't have that knowledge. We have probably more buildings in the UK than we currently use. Leeds um, Building Society, 600,000 empty homes. Do we actually really need to be building 300 more as the uh, 300,000 more, as the government is saying? I worry, as we transition too quickly to a bio-based economy, um, what um, Paul said about trees growing for 25 years, that really scares me. On average, a, a UK tree that is harvested at 600 mil 
diameter breast height, which would go to BSW, it could be 50 to 70 years old. Now, to make that sustainable, that tree that's been turned into timber needs to last a minimum of that amount in that building. If you're getting cross-laminated timber from northern Sweden, that's 100 years. Now, we all know that timber burns. We know it chars. Obviously, we don't want it to burn. But what is more, even more dangerous is moisture, moisture in construction and moisture in use. And that's going to apply to all bio-based materials, but it, relies, it applies to concrete and it applies to steel. So my plea is, how do we get collaboration right at the beginning so we get your architect, we get your engineer, we get your developer into the room, maybe IPI, Integrated Project Insurance, getting the whole lot in together and then using buildings that already exist and extending them and adding to them and only, only, only building new completely if we really, really have to. But uh, yeah, I don't know, what did the audience say? Materials really matter, but we need to build less, we need to build better, and we need to build for human beings, not for capital. Yes, I mean, the materials matter. It's, it's a, a good comment for this, for where we are. A political will, which we're sadly lacking. I said I'd end on hope, so that's a very negative thing to say. But collaboration, I think that's what everyone's sort of talking about. And kind of knowledge sharing and just knowing the facts, knowing the numbers, knowing about trees. It's so vital for all of us, I think, for the non-architects like me. But, you know, it's, I think political will also is, is massive. Has anyone else got some questions? Because I think we are going to draw... Any, anyone got any positive? Armin, handing over to you. I'm going to be positive. <laughs> hope, hope. There is hope. I wouldn't be so negative about the timber. But here's a thought experiment. So uh, as we were, as we were um, being told, all trees, all biomaterials are sequestering carbon. They, they're effectively a carbon dioxide battery. So imagine if we built all buildings 100% in timber. And it's exactly as you say. Your wiring can't be timber. The glazing can't be timber. So on and so forth. We're not going to build skyscrapers in timber. We definitely need skyscrapers in certain urban situations. So we we'll, might use stone. Let's have that thought experiment of the lowest possible embodied carbon materials as well as negative ones, and they all become CO2 batteries. What we're actually going to do is take CO2 out the atmosphere eventually yeah? and store it in buildings. This, these aren't just feelings. So Tom, Tom Crowther in Zurich and Professor Rummage in Cambridge. So Rummage in Cambridge is already saying the EU will be sequestering about 25% of its um, emissions through its commercial forestry, which is already growing. So the, the, the forests aren't disappearing. We can keep cutting them. They're cutting and cutting and using them for building products, and they're growing, yeah? And they're going to grow more. And if we legislate, just like France has done, 30% of any new building must be biomaterial. If it's publicly funded, it must be 50%. Suddenly, its timber industry is um, taking off. And if we, ju just to be slightly controversial, let's just pretend that we're going to kill off all concrete and all steel. Yeah? All buildings can be done. We've done basements with no concrete in them uh, and reduce the amount of steel. If you aim for that, you'll realize, aha, I still need those materials, but I don't need them as much. Yeah? So it's not about eliminating all these materials. It's just intelligently thinking them through. And they can be positive. Yeah, the, only, the, the big stumbling blocks are education uh, and for developers' money. So if, if you work them out intelligently, guess what? We like looking at timber. 
So if your timber is your structure, you like looking at it. You don't have to line it in aluminium and plasterboard and paint it, do you? That reduces the cost for the developer. He gets a cheaper building, which is nice and made out of timber and stone. Yeah? So there is a positive message. Just, just, just do it, as it were. <laughs> I think we're kind of ready to wrap up. I mean, I think we have to stay positive. Um, I think if you all grab a Negroni, that might help with the positivity. I mean, there are huge issues facing us all. And I think if we meet back in an hour, we'll talk about lithium batteries. No, that's, that's a joke. Um, so enjoy the show. Have a drink. Um, I think, yeah, let's be positive about the future. I think there's some great brains. I'd like to say thank you to the ones that we got to speak amongst you. So thank you to Elaine, thank you to Bola, thank you to Joe, and thank you to Paul. Um, it's been such an enjoyable talk. And yeah, thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.